The Old Testament reading for today is Psalm 62. The New Testament reading is 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 17. Psalm 62, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 17. The title of the sermon today is The Church as Temple, Its Foundation. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. To the choir master, according to the Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, send not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to man according to his work. Let us go now to 1 Corinthians 3 and read verses 1 through 17. The sermon will be based in part upon this text. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, uh, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... 
Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple." May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Holy Word this morning as the Scriptures are preached. In the introduction to the previous sermon, I made the observation that there are many institutions in the world that call themselves a church. There is the Roman Catholic Church, there is the Mormon Church, There is the Church of Scientology, etc., etc. And in the introduction to that sermon, I said, according to the simple etymological definition of the word church, I suppose they have a right to use the word. The word church simply means assembly or congregation, and all of these institutions that I have named do in fact assemble or congregate regularly for stated purposes. And so considered in this way, I suppose it is right to say that they are churches, according to the definition of the word. But in the scriptures, the word church is not used in this generic way. Christ is building His church, and yes, His church will assemble or congregate, as the word suggests, but His church is not just any congregation or assembly. No, Christ's church, the church as it is described in the Bible, is a very specific kind of congregation or assembly. It has certain characteristics. It has certain qualities and features. It is an assembly marked by certain beliefs and certain practices. So then it should be clear to you that there are, in this world, true churches and there are also False churches. Are they churches? Well, if the only criteria to be met for being a church is the etymological or definitional criteria, then I suppose they are. Church means assembly, and they do in fact assemble. But the Scriptures have more to say about the church. The church, that is to say Christ's church, is a very particular kind of assembly, congregation, or we may even say society. If we were to describe the church of Jesus Christ as God's temple, as the scriptures so often do, we must say that the church of Jesus Christ, the true church, as described in the Bible, has a very particular foundation. It is constructed of very particular stones, living stones, made alive by the Spirit of God. And it has a very particular purpose, namely the worship of God as governed by God's holy word. And lastly, this temple is expanding, but it is expanding only in a particular way and through particular means, namely evangelism, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Spirit works. I plan to explore each of these characteristics of the church in this short sermon series that we are now in. We will be considering Christ's church, the true church, 
as God's temple. Today we will consider its foundation. Next Sunday we will consider its stones. The Sunday after that we will consider its worship. And finally we will consider its expansion. And I should say, Lord willing. Yes, all of this is a bit of a follow-up to what was proclaimed in our study through Exodus concerning God's tabernacle or temple. In that series, we learned that God's worldwide and and eternal temple was offered to Adam in the covenant that God made with him but forfeited. It was then promised to Adam vaguely in the curse pronounced upon the serpent by God after man's fall into sin. This promise was greatly clarified and expanded in the covenant that God made with Abraham and in the covenant that God made with Israel in the days of Moses. These promises, the ones that were first made to Adam and to Abraham, were taken up. They were preserved. They were protected and even prefigured in many ways. Under the old Mosaic covenant, God's worldwide and eternal temple was prefigured or pictured on earth. But when Christ came into the world to accomplish our redemption and to earn the new creation, this temple was brought into being with power. It was inaugurated, we say. It was then that the Spirit of God was poured out not into a structure of cloth or stone, but on all flesh. It was then that God began to dwell in the midst of His people in a way not known since Eden. This temple, which is inaugurated now, will come to its conclusion or consummation in the new heavens and earth. That is to say, in the new creation when Christ returns. And here in this short series, we are giving special attention to this era in which we now live. It is the era of the new covenant. It is the era of the covenant of grace. It is the era of God's Spirit. God's worldwide and eternal temple is here now, brothers and sisters. It is here now with power. And according to the Scriptures, you, church, are that temple for God's Spirit dwells in you. This is such an important theme for us to consider, such an important topic. We come to church each Lord's Day. We assemble together to worship God as His people. We had better know what we are. We had better know what it is that we are doing. We had better know what this church, this assembly, is to be all about, how it is to be formed, what its purposes are, and how the thing is expanded. Brothers and sisters, we need to pay careful attention to what God is doing in the world, how He is building His temple now in this era in which we currently live. The new covenant, covenant of grace, era of God's Spirit. Today we will consider the foundation of God's inaugurated worldwide and eternal temple. The foundation of this temple is not made of stones as it was in the days of Solomon. Instead, the foundation is the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. What is the foundation of God's inaugurated eternal temple? What is the foundation of God's temple as it exists on earth now in this era in which we live? The foundation is not stones. It is the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. That is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19-22. 
There he speaks to Gentiles, that is to say to non-Jews, living under the new covenant. And he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, as they were under the old covenant, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 3.9, which we read earlier. He describes himself and other ministers of the Word as workers in God's temple building project, saying, For we are God's fellow workers... You, church in Corinth, are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Did you hear it? Paul in Ephesians 2 says the foundation is the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. And here in 1 Corinthians 3, he says that the foundation is Christ. What does he mean when he says that he, like a skilled master builder, laid this foundation? Well, he was the first one to preach Christ to them. So he laid the foundation and now others are building up upon it. And he warns these builders who have come after him to be careful how they build. The foundation is so very precious. The building is so very dear. It is so very holy, so very important to God. They had better take careful, take great care with how they build upon this foundation that has already been laid. So then in Ephesians 2.19 and following, Paul says the foundation of God's temple church is the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 9-11, he simply says that the foundation is Jesus Christ. So which is it? Uh, which is it, Paul? You have described the foundation to God's temple church in two different ways. The apostles, prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. And here in 1 Corinthians, you say the foundation is Jesus Christ. Well, both are true. The short answer is that Jesus Christ is the foundation of God's temple church. But it is just as true to say that the foundation is the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. Who are the apostles? They were eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. And they were those especially sent by Jesus to testify concerning all that He said and did. The New Testament Scriptures were written by them or under their supervision. And who are these prophets that Paul speaks of? I think it is right to say that they are the prophets of old, who lived before Christ's coming, who testified concerning Him. And they are the prophets that lived uh, during Jesus' life and shortly thereafter. John the Baptist was one of these. He was the last of the prophets of old and the forerunner of Christ. And the man named Agabus, who is mentioned in Acts 21.10, is also one of these. In the earliest days of the church, in, in those days when the New Testament Scriptures were still being written, there were apostles, the twelve plus Paul, and there were prophets who spoke and wrote the Word of God authoritatively under the inspiration of the Spirit. The New Testament prophets, like the Old Testament prophets before them, 
spoke God's word to the people. And they spoke with authority, saying, Thus saith the Lord. And who did these, the prophets of the Old and the prophets of the New Covenant, along with the apostles, speak of? Who did they speak of? Ultimately, they pointed to Christ. Those who lived before His birth pointed forward to His person, work, and reward. John the Baptist had the wonderful privilege of saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the prophets who ministered after His resurrection and alongside the apostles spoke authoritatively concerning Christ's crucified, risen, and ascended. When Paul speaks of the apostles and prophets as being foundation stones in God's eternal temple... He does not mean that these men are foundation stones in and of themselves. But by virtue of the word they delivered, they spoke and wrote God's word. They testified ultimately concerning whom? They testified concerning Christ. And so they are foundation stones, not because of anything in them, but because of their relation to Jesus Christ. They declared God's word and proclaimed Christ with divine authority. So it is clear then that this eternal and worldwide temple that God is building now is not made of stone. It is made of people. This is about God's presence on earth with His people. And the foundation stones of this temple are the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone, stated differently and even more simply, the foundation is Christ Himself. And it is the apostles of Christ and the prophets of the Old and New Covenants who have testified faithfully concerning Him. So what does it mean for Christ to be the foundation of God's temple church? What does this mean exactly? What are the implications of this truth? And two words come to mind. Dependence and alignment. Dependence and alignment. The true church of God... And all who are truly a part of it will depend upon Christ. And the true church of God and all who are truly a part of it will align with Christ. This talk of Christ being the foundation of God's temple church is about dependence. Perhaps we could say faith. And it is about alignment. Perhaps we could say obedience in thought, in word, and in deed. I'm sure you know that this is how foundations work. The foundations of buildings, and here I am just talking about typical foundations of typical buildings. They're very, very important, and for two reasons. One, these foundations must be able to bear the weight of the building that is built upon them. They must be very strong, therefore. They must be strong enough to support the whole structure that is built on top of them, Not only in times of ease, but also in times of difficulty through storms, floods, earthquakes, and the rest. Buildings depend upon their foundations. Two, the foundations of buildings will also establish their shape or their parameters. The building that is constructed on top of the foundation will have to align with the foundation that is is laid down. So the foundation had better be the right shape. The foundation had also better be level and square. The shape of the foundation will determine the shape of the building. And for this reason, I say 
This is about dependence and alignment. The true church of God and all who are truly a part of it will depend upon Christ and will align with Him, for He is the foundation of God's temple. I'd like to consider these two implications in more detail now. First, the church will depend upon Christ as its foundation. This is true of individual believers, the church universal, and of every local, or we may say visible, church. Let us consider individual believers for a moment. In the 1 Corinthians 3 and Ephesians 2 passage that have already been read, individual believers, that is to say all who have faith in Christ, are described as being the stones of God's temple church. Christ is the foundation, and the stones that are built up on top of that foundation are those who are united to Christ by faith. In 1 Peter 2.4, it is stated even more directly. Peter writes to those who have faith when he says, As you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So then, Christ is the foundation of God's temple church, according to Peter also, and all who have faith in Him are the stones out of which the structure is made. We will consider the stones of God's temple church more carefully next Sunday, Lord willing, but for now let us consider their relation to Christ, the foundation. The stones of God's temple are those who depend upon Him. They are those who trust in Him. They are those who rest on Him and have their hope built on Him. It is those who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, for reconciliation with God, and for life everlasting in the new heavens and earth who are a part of God's church. They are stones. Christ is the foundation upon which they rest. It is those who trust or depend upon Christ who are the stones in God's temple church. All who do not are outside of God's eternal temple. This temple church may be considered in a universal sense. In truth, there is only one church. There is only one foundation. The apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. And it is upon this one foundation that every living stone is placed. So whenever a sinner hears the gospel and is drawn to faith and repentance by the inward working of the Holy Spirit, they are added as a stone in God's temple church. They are placed on top of those who have gone before them. And ultimately they are placed on top of Christ, the foundation. What unites all of these stones in God's temple church together? What is the thing that unites them? It is their shared faith or dependence upon Christ. That is the thing that all of these stones in God's temple church have in common. They are all resting on Christ. They all depend upon Him as their eternal foundation. The living stones of God's inaugurated eternal temple are quarried, from all over the earth. They are people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And these stones have been quarried for a very long time. All who have had faith in Christ, who have lived before us, are stones in this temple too. They worship God in their souls now in heaven as they await the resurrection. 
This is the universal church, brothers and sisters. It may also be called the invisible church. And it is called the invisible church because it is something that we cannot see. God sees it, but we cannot see it. It is called the universal church because it is the one true church made up of all who have faith in Christ now and in the past from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We cannot see this church because we now are limited in space. Two, we cannot see it because we are limited in time. Three, we cannot see it because we are limited in our perception of the heart and mind. Only God can now see His universal church, which He has built of stones that He has quarried from across time and from across this planet to set them down upon the foundation of Christ in whom they trust. It is true that God's temple church may be considered in a universal sense and that we should be mindful of it. But you will notice that when Paul and Peter wrote concerning the building up of God's church, they were not writing to the church universal and invisible, but to churches local and visible. It was to the church in Ephesus that Paul wrote, saying, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It was to the church in Corinth that he said, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And Peter wrote to churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia when he said, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men and in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So yes, there is a universal church. It is the church, the one church that God sees, consisting of all of His elect in all times and places who have been brought to repentance and faith in Christ. But I ask you, when will this church, the universal church, assemble? When will this church, the universal church, the invisible church, assemble? I suppose we may say that she assembles each Lord's Day in the heavenly realm as believers from all around the world, along with those in heaven now, come to worship the Father through the Son and by the Spirit, given their union with Christ. But I'm asking, when will this universal church assemble bodily? And the answer is this. This universal church will assemble bodily in the new heavens and earth when all is made new. But for now, Christ's church assembles bodily in local, visible congregations. These churches are called local because they are the assemblies of those who profess faith in Christ in a particular region, and they are called visible because we can see them. I am looking at the visible church, the local church, right now. I can see it manifest before me. We have assembled together in this place. They are made up of people who have made a credible profession of faith in Christ. They are made up of officers and members, men and women, young and old, who have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These assemble in local, visible churches to hear the Word of God read and preached, to pray and sing, and to partake of the Lord's Supper according to the commandment of God 
in the Holy Scriptures. What unites us, brothers and sisters? What is the thing that unites us together? What is the, what is the thing around which we assemble? It is faith in Christ that unites us. He is the foundation upon which we all rest. And we together are stones in the eternal temple that God is now building. I think the implications of this basic teaching are rather massive. You know, there are lots of debates that rage around the subject of ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. A lot of them would be cleared up, up, I think, if we would only pay attention to these basic teachings. The church is God's inaugurated eternal temple. The foundation is Jesus Christ. The stones of this temple are all who have their life built upon Him. They are those who depend upon Him. They are those who have faith in Him. I think that is the most obvious implication. Who should be received as members of our local churches? Only those who make a credible profession of faith. And what should the church be urging men and women to do? The church ought to be urging men and women to turn from their sins, to place their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and to be united to Christ as living stones in His eternal temple, of which Christ Himself is the foundation. A true church, a true church, not just any assembly, but a true church of God, and all who are truly a part of it, will depend upon Christ, brothers and sisters. There are many institutions in the world that call themselves a church, but many are false. Why? Because they do not have Jesus Christ alone as their foundation. As Paul says, in the work of building God's eternal temple, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is the only foundation suitable to build the church upon. It is Jesus Christ. And so many of these institutions that go by the name church fail to do this very thing. They fail to point men and women to Jesus Christ as the only foundation for their life now and for eternity. True churches and true Christians will depend upon Christ alone for eternal life. Secondly, the true church will also align with Christ. And this is also true for individual believers, the church universal, and local visible churches. True churches and all who belong to them will align with Christ. When I speak of alignment, I have conformity and obedience in mind. As I've said, the foundations of buildings must be very strong because the whole weight of the structure depends upon them. Foundations must also be true, though, because the whole building will have to align or conform with them. The shape of the foundation will determine the shape of the building. If the foundation is level, square, and true, the building will be true. And Christ, the foundation of God's eternal temple, is true. We must align ourselves to Him in thought and word and indeed this may be applied to the individual believer to have Christ as savior one must trust in him or depend upon him faith does involve trust that's already been said but did you know that saving faith does not only involve trust it also involves 
right belief. This is often neglected in presentations of the gospel, I'm afraid. Men and women are urged to believe upon Christ, to trust in Him, to have faith in Him. And that is good and right because faith does involve trust. But true saving faith also involves right belief. I'll say it very directly. Friends, you cannot be saved from your sins without right belief. And this should be obvious to all. To trust in Christ, to depend upon Him as your Savior, you must know about Him. You must know about Him. Who is He? And what has He done to make Him worthy of your trust? That simple question alone should make it clear that faith, true faith, involves right belief. If I say to you, trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, the next thing that should come to your mind, if you have never heard of Him before, is who is this Jesus and why is He worthy of my trust? Why is He worthy to be believed upon? What has He done to make Him worthy of this? And also, what do you mean that He is a Savior? A Savior from what and to what? True faith must involve right belief. And that should be clear. And where is this information about Christ found? It is not going to be found in the stars, uh, brothers and sisters. It is not going to be found in the trees or in the mountains. It is not going to be found in your unaided intellect or reason. This information about Christ, who He is, what He has done, why He is the only way to reconciliation with the Father is found in the Word of God. It is found in the Holy Scriptures. There we find God's Word to us concerning Himself, our relation to Him, and the way that He has made for us to be right with Him now that humanity has fallen into sin. These truths about God, man, and Christ must be known before a person can possibly trust in Christ for salvation. Now, I'm not claiming that a person must be a master theologian or a skilled interpreter of Holy Scripture before he or she can be saved. As I preach this now, I'm thinking back to the class that we just had at 9 o'clock on the doctrine of Christ. And some very difficult concepts were presented there concerning how we should view Christ and His two natures being united in the one person forever. I'm not saying that men and women have to be master theologians or skilled interpreters of Holy Scripture before they can be saved, but but clearly basic truths about God, man, and Christ must be known. And what are these basic truths? They are the scriptural truths summarized for us in the great creeds, confessions, and catechisms of the church. These documents that I have just mentioned are not authoritative for us in the way that the Scripture is authoritative. But they become useful and even authoritative in a sense, in a secondary way, as churches adopt them as summaries of the clear and basic teachings of Holy Scripture. Creeds, confessions, and catechisms must align with Scripture, or to state it according to the theme of the sermon today, They must align with Christ the Word, our foundation. If they do not align with God's Word to us, they must be either amended or rejected entirely. But if they do align, and if they are useful summaries of the faith and presentations of the gospel of Jesus Christ that must be believed for salvation to be received, 
then it would be wise to use them in evangelism and in discipleship. Our, our confession is the Second London Confession. Our catechism is the Baptist Catechism. We consider them to be wonderful symbols or summaries of the Christian faith. And so we use them as tools to proclaim Christ and to teach those who believe to observe all that He has commanded. I mention creeds, confessions, and catechisms because the church has used them throughout history to urge men and women to depend upon Christ and also to align with Him, for He is our foundation. Again, I must say the Scriptures alone are authoritative in a primary way. The Scriptures alone are authoritative in a foundational way for right belief. But these summaries of the faith may be considered authoritative in a secondary way, so long as they are faithful to Scripture as summaries. And also I mention creeds, confessions, and catechisms because modern Christianity has grown more and more doctrineless. And I think, brothers and sisters, this is a major problem. It is a major problem that needs to be addressed. Men and women, boys and girls, are often urged to trust in Christ. And some are even baptized in His name before understanding who He is, what He has done, and what He requires of them. Stated according to the theme of this sermon, in our day and age, many are urged to depend upon Christ. That is good, indeed. This is to be our response to the gospel. We are to believe upon Christ. We are to depend upon Him. But they are not so much urged to align with Him as our foundation. But if Christ is going to be our foundation, and if we are going to be living stones in His eternal temple, we must align with Him. In fact, He cannot support us as our foundation if we do not align with Him. What an absurd thought this is. To benefit from a foundation as it pertains to dependence or trust, support, without alignment. Uh, it should be clear to all that in order to benefit from a foundation in this way of dependence, there must also be alignment with the foundation that has been laid. A foundation cannot support that which is not aligned with it. And yet so many think they have Christ as some kind of Savior while holding to, to erroneous beliefs concerning His person and work. And no, I am not here thinking of minor errors, the kind of which we all entertain, but rather major errors which do in fact destroy the very foundation of the faith. If you doubt that true and saving faith require right belief, I want you to listen to Paul's words in Romans 10.9. There he famously says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That is Romans 10.9. This verse is clearly about salvation. If you do these things, you will be saved, Paul says. And what does Paul tell us to do? Well, throughout his writings and even elsewhere in Romans, he urges us to have faith in Christ. For example, in Romans 5.1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified it by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified or saved by faith. But here in Romans 10, 10, 9, he describes what true faith involves. It involves saying, uh, rather he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Let, Let me ask you this. How can someone confess Jesus to be Lord if they do not know who Jesus is or what it means for Him to be Lord? or why it is that He is worthy of that glorious title. And notice further that belief, the belief that Paul urges, is to reside within the heart. And it is not merely trust or dependence, but belief in a fact. To be saved, we must believe in the heart that God raised this Christ from the dead. So this is not just mindless trust or dependence. This is, in fact, belief in a fact, belief in a historical fact, which itself has meaning. That fact about Jesus must be believed, and I think it is also clear that the reasons for and implications of that fact must be known and believed too. Jesus was raised from the dead. Do do you believe that that is true? Do you know why He was raised from the dead? Do you know what that fact means for those who are united to Him by faith? Do you trust Him personally? Do you trust Him personally? If the answer is truly yes, then this is saving faith. But trust without true knowledge is no faith at all. It is simply wishful and superstitious thinking. In fact, I think a lot of professing Christians today are in fact just that, superstitious. You see, they have, they, have a, they have a version of Jesus that is much like a, a religious trinket in their mind, an idol of sorts. They've added Him to their little array of gods that give them some degree of comfort and, and hope in life. But they do not know Him truly, for they do not know the facts about Him. Brothers and sisters, doctrine matters To have Jesus as your foundation and to be a part of God's eternal temple does not only involve trust or dependence, it also involves alignment. Or to put it another way, to truly depend upon Jesus, to trust in Him unto salvation, you you must align with Him. You must believe God's Word concerning His person and work. You must confess with your mouth that He is your Lord, which will also involve submitting to His will and thought, word and deed. Please allow me to say just a word or two about the universal church and alignment. To be a part of the universal church that I have described earlier, one must confess the faith. Notice I did not say one must have faith. That is also true, of course. But here I am saying that one must confess the faith. The faith being essential Christian doctrines. The scriptures often use the word faith in a subjective way, referring to personal trust. But sometimes the scriptures use the word faith in an objective way, referring to the collection of Christian doctrine that has been handed down to us. When used in this objective way, the word faith is typically preceded by a definite article. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16.13, listen carefully now to God's word. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Did you hear it? Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. By the way, I think that would be a wonderful life verse. Be watchful. 
Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. What does Paul mean here? When he mentions the faith, he does not merely mean personal trust, but rather sound doctrine. Are we to have personal trust in Christ? Are we to have personal, subjective faith, dependence upon Him? Are we to rest in Him? Yes, indeed. But there is also the faith that must be held firmly too. And that is not subjective trust. That is objective belief in sound doctrine. There is faith and then there is the faith. That is to say, the Christian faith. It must be believed. It must be held tightly to. It must be preserved and protected. It must be proclaimed. When Paul mentions the faith, he does not merely mean personal trust, but sound doctrine. In, second, in Colossians 2, 6-7, through 7, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, being rooted, being rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Again, the faith refers not merely to personal trust, but to sound doctrine too. Our personal trust in Christ Jesus must be rooted in sound doctrine. We must know the faith and trust upon Christ from the heart to be saved. Another way to make the point is to say it like this. There are damnable heresies, brothers and sisters, which, if believed will set a person outside of Christ's temple church. You cannot have Christ as your foundation if you do not trust in Him, and neither can you have Him as your foundation if you do not align with Him doctrinally. And we know that right doctrine will also produce right practice over time. As was said earlier, we all harbor Wrong beliefs concerning God, man, Christ, and our salvation in Him. I'm sure of that. If we knew what they were, we would confess them and correct them by God's grace. I hope you agree with that statement. We all hold to erroneous beliefs concerning God, man, Christ, salvation, and other things revealed in God's most holy word. I know it's true. If we knew what they were, we would confess them and correct them. I hope that is true. Not every error, brothers and sisters, is damnable heresy, though. For most of them do not disturb the foundation. Most of them do not disturb the foundation, which is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But some errors do. Some errors do not only cause us to be slightly misaligned from Christ and His Word, but in fact, set us off the foundation entirely. There are different types of errors, different degrees of errors. In God's universal temple church, every stone is, if considered in a human way, misaligned from Christ the cornerstone slightly. Can you picture it now? Christ the master builder sets us straight over time through sanctification And where misalignments remain, He covers those defects by His shed blood and by imputing His perfections to us. But there are some errors that destroy the foundation. And if believed, they set a person off the foundation of Christ entirely. Listen to to Paul 
in 1 Timothy 4.1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, though though through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. In 6.10 of the same, in the same book, 1 Timothy, he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. That is 6.10. And in 6.11 he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Their faith is mentioned in that subjective sense, trust. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So throughout this letter that Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy, he is stressing the importance of sound doctrine. He is warning that some will in fact depart. Some who name the name of Christ, who make a profession, will depart from the faith. They will sow error. They will believe damnable heresies and thus be removed off the foundation of Christ entirely. Now, I am not saying that men and women could lose their salvation. That's another issue here. But here I am speaking of the possibility of holding to erroneous belief, beliefs that are so in air that they do in fact do damage to the very foundation which is Christ, the apostles and prophets. Brothers and sisters, we must care about doctrine. I think that is the implication for the local church. Not only must ministers and members urge one another to trust in Christ, we also must be concerned to align with Him in thought, word, and deed. There can be no dependence upon Christ as our foundation without substantial alignment with Him. And so Christ must be proclaimed and the Scriptures must be taught. Pastors must Teach, brothers and sisters. Pastors must teach. This is what Paul told Pastor Titus. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And I think you would agree with me that it will not do any good for a pastor to teach in Christ's church if the members are not hungry to learn the Word of God. So as Christ's church, as God's inaugurated eternal temple church, we must be concerned to not only depend upon Christ as the object of our subjective faith, we must not only be concerned to trust in Him, but also to align ourselves with Him. Brothers and sisters, doctrine matters We must align ourselves with God's most holy word. We must believe what He has revealed. We cannot be like so many in this world today who want to have Christ but do not want to have doctrine or teaching. We need to love our Lord enough to listen to what He has said, to seek to understand what He has said, to believe what He has said. And where errors persist, we must be humble enough to Submit with, we- with meekness to the implanted word, which is able to save our souls, you see. We must submit ourselves to the word of God. Parents, 
We must teach our children sound doctrine. Anybody notice how fast time flies by? It's the Lord's Day already. It's the Lord's Day already. Here it is again. This event is upon us. I thought it was a long ways off. The years fly by. My child is already 10. My child is already 18. I'm already fill in the blank. Time flies by. Don't waste time, brothers and sisters. Don't distract yourselves with meaningless things. Don't be consumed with things that have no benefit to you now and for eternity. Love God's Word. Cherish God's Word. Build your life upon the foundation of Christ and upon His Word. Study it. And here I am addressing the parents. Teach your children God's Word. Give them sound doctrine. They'll be out of your home before you know it. And you'll have missed the opportunity. Give them sound doctrine. Do not be slack in this. Tell them to depend upon Christ only for the forgiveness of sins. Warn them not to trust in their own goodness. For they don't have their own goodness. Warn them not to trust in obedience to the law. For the law condemns us. We have violated it in thought, word, and deed. And stand guilty before God as a result. Warn them to run to Christ and to do Depend upon Him alone for the forgiveness of sins, but also teach them to align with Christ. To receive and to believe the written Word of God which has been entrusted to us. We must not only have faith, we must have the faith as our own. We must cling to it. We must protect it. We must proclaim it. Perhaps we should close with a verse that has become a kind of purpose statement for Emmaus. It is Colossians 1.28, and it says this, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This, brothers and sisters, should be our aim as a Christian congregation, as God's inaugurated temple church. This should be our aim, to proclaim Christ, to warn everyone and teach everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would help us to be what you have called us to be in this world as your people, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You have called us, you have saved us, not to exist as individuals, but to be stones in your eternal temple. Lord, help us to comprehend this. Help us to live according to these truths not only individually, but also in this local congregation. And if you should move us on from this place, I pray that you would help us to join ourselves to another church that has this understanding and this aim. Oh God, I pray that you would build your church here in this place and to the ends of the earth. And Lord Jesus, we say, come quickly. For we long to assemble together with the church universal to give you the praise that you so rightly deserve. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, our foundation. Amen.